the ability to use your smartphone, use your laptop from anywhere is huge and just cuts down one of those otherwise hard constraints in, on how people work. Increasing requirements for bandwidth and latency, you know, video and studies that show that video latency has a huge effect on kind of your interaction with co-workers, that milliseconds make a difference in being able to read people's body language, you know, nonverbal communication. And, you know, increasingly, the internet feels like a true utility in the sense of power or water in that just like nothing works when it's not there. Welcome to The Restless Ones. I'm Jonathan Strickland. I've spent more than a decade really learning about technology, what makes it tick, and then describing and explaining that to my audience. But it's the conversations with the world's most unconventional thinkers, the leaders at the intersection of technology and business that fascinate me the most. In partnership with T-Mobile for Business, I explore the unique set of challenges that CTOs and CIOs and other tech executives face from advancements in cloud and edge computing, software as a service, Internet of Things, and, of course, 5G. We are often left wondering how the leading minds in business continue to thrive. Let's find out. Our guest today is Cal Henderson, Chief Technology Officer of Slack. Chances are you're familiar with Slack. The collaborative platform has proven to be a popular tool even before the days of the pandemic. Once the business world was forced to pivot in the wake of COVID-19, Slack's role in how many of us do our work became undeniable. I sat down with Cal to talk about his background in software development, how he navigated the transition from programmer to a leadership role, and how he sees technology playing a part in how we do our work in the future. Cal, just to start off with, I want to thank you for joining us on The Restless Ones, and welcome to the program. Thank you for having me. Excited to be here. I'm very excited to have a chance to speak with you. So, can you tell us when and how you first started to get interested in the world of technology? Uh, yeah, uh, it was from a really young age. I grew up in the UK, um, kind of in the countryside as well. And when I was really young, I have a slightly older cousin who got one of the first kind of home computers. One of those things you plugged into your TV and it came with a basic interpreter. So you could write little programs in basic. And I saw this and I was like, this is so cool. This is now my obsession. And then a few years later, I was like, in fact, this is what I'm going to do for the rest of my life. I don't know that there are jobs doing this. But this would be cool if there was a job. And so from like a really young age, like when I was seven or something like that, I was obsessed with programming. And at the time, obviously, technology computers were very different because it's the pre-internet era. Um, and so it was about like making local applications and in the like 90s graduated to making like Windows apps. But then when the internet and when the web came around, um, that was like opened up a whole kind of set of possibilities because I could make something and I love just like making software for, for people. And so it was a it was like a hobby and a passion, I guess it still is. And I just knew I wanted to make software. And it's just like the making of stuff. It's such a, you know, kind of interesting medium. I just love making software that other people use, especially things that a lot of people use every day and, you know, make their lives a bit better. Software is just software, but it's a tool and has become increasingly important in everybody's lives and everything everybody does. And that's just such a cool thing to be part of it. I mean, you're extremely humble, but I, I would argue that obviously software 
is such an intrinsic part of almost every aspect of our lives today, whether you are conscious of it or not. It's present in some regard. Uh, and of course, the hardware that underlies it is equally as important that you really got into a field that was just starting to explode as I would imagine that by the time you were first programming in BASIC, that was probably around the same time that a lot of people weren't really familiar with computers on a personal level at all. They had heard of them and they thought that's a thing that does math. So you kind of got in right at that perfect moment. I guess so. I think if I were older, I think that would have been more of a struggle because I was there at that threshold of kind of the explosion of the web, the explosion of personal computers, and then quite a bit later, you know, the the kind of mobile shift, which I think has been the really big shift there in how people think about technology. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it was just well-timed, you know. I started my career like, you know, a decade before Facebook existed and kind of, uh, you know, before the dot-com boom of the of 2000, which was just such an exciting time for this thing that was a passion of mine to turn into something you could make money from. Like, that wasn't mm -hmm. my intention. I just did it as a passion because I love making stuff. And it's kind of incredible now the influence that it has on society and how important it is in everything. But that wasn't the case 25 years ago. Mm. Well, what, what was your first, you know, professional gig in the world of programming and software development? There was an advertising agency in the UK, and I made some websites for, for brands at that company. And it's like, this is really cool. I got into static websites, but then it was, what if we had a community around a brand and had a for, like a forum where people could post messages? And that idea, uh, the web as a medium where people could talk to each other on it as well, you know, because we'd had like email and Usenet and IRC and things before that. But the web as a platform for, for interacting with other people was really exciting to me. And I think that's what got me on the path kind of to where I am today of, building things that allowed people to interact. And I think, you know, the ultimately the changes that, you know, have been brought about in society by the internet, by the advancement of technology, there's a lot of like information like available to you now that's hugely different. And I think the really big impact has been in and still is with the internet and connecting people in ways that you weren't able to before, you know, and the collapsing of geographic borders and geographic distance and the, you know, the world the world is a lot more accessible and, and people are a lot more connected to each other than ever before. Well, and I also love that with your story, we see the, the transition from what we used to call the Web 1.0 model to the Web 2.0. I'm curious, what would you say was your first sort of leadership role in, in tech? Yeah, I definitely... You know, I got into technology because I like creating stuff, not because I wanted to be like a manager of people or a leader or anything like that. I kind of fell into that. So with the previous company, we made a website called uh, Flickr that was kind of at the at the very beginning of Web 2.0, which was a photo sharing website. And the, you know, we were a very, we started as a very small company. We saw this as a an, a niche, incredibly at the time, because Flickr launched in 2004, it was novel, the idea of putting, allowing people to put photos on a web page so other people could see them, which sounds crazy, because that wasn't even 20 years ago. Um, but we were just the first people that really allowed you to do that. You know, prior to that, there'd been the introduction of uh, digital cameras, the very first cell phones with with cameras in them. 
but people were starting to carry cameras around with them and take a lot of photos. But really, the only thing you could do was upload them to have them printed at a Walgreens or like have them put on a mouse pad or on a mug. And so it's like there's that shift of people were starting to take a lot more photos, but there's nothing to do with them. And we just thought, let's put them on a web page. And we got really lucky with the timing, I think. It was more and more people were starting to get on the internet. More and more people were starting to take photos and not have anything to do with them. And suddenly it started blowing up and it was a, you know, at the time, a big phenomenon. And we sold that in 2005 to Yahoo. And as the company grew, I was the head of engineering and so became the leader there on the engineering side, kind of by accident. Well, what were some of the lessons you learned? I mean, to make that transition from like purely a creative standpoint to a leadership one? It was incredibly difficult. And I think the reason being that all of my career and kind of pre-career up to that point, I identified as a programmer, as a software engineer. And that's how, like, that's what I loved doing. And also how I was kind of deriving my sense of self-worth. And the transition to being in a leadership role, certainly as I am today, where I'm not writing code anymore, not professionally, and I'm further and further away from, you know, that the thing which I enjoy doing is really difficult to make that shift away from how you see yourself providing value and what it is you do and what a valuable use of time is. But the realization that it's just much higher leverage to not do that, that however good a programmer I was, and I'm not saying I was a great programmer by any stretch of the imagination, like five people are always going to be better and 10 people and 100 people and 1000 people are always going to have better leverage. So, you know, that switch in mindset to I, you know, I make things to I'm a multiplier on other people making things, I think is the is the big shift. And as the team evolved over years, that was kind of a gradual process. I'm pretty happy with it today. I'm pretty at peace with my you know place in the world. But I think that was a big shift. And that was difficult for me. Yeah, I imagine that's the sort of thing that you realize more upon reflection than you do while you're actually going through it. I think that's both true. And there's an aspect of like, like having to come to terms with it at the time as well of like, I shouldn't be spending my time this way because it's not actually valuable. And I think that's still a lesson at any scale that you need to keep reminding yourself is what is a valuable use of time versus what feels like you could be doing right now. And I think that's often a challenge for leaders at any scale to separate the strategic from the tactical. Because as organizations get larger, there's a never-ending stream of things you could be doing that feel urgent and feel simple and straightforward and are probably rewarding to do as well. They're like immediate gratification. You get this thing done, it's done. So being able to take a step back and think, how should I be spending the balance of my time today, this week, this month? What is the time that's going into our next six months, our next year, our next three or five years versus tasks I can complete today? And I think that in some ways, growing as a leader is that constant cycle of understanding that you need to be more strategic and less tactical and keep that balance correct. So I think it's a mental shift to understand that while that feels rewarding, that isn't the thing that's going to make you the most successful over the long term. Well, this is this is fascinating. And we've we've kind of bled into, obviously, your time at, at Slack. Uh, I'm curious to hear more about when you first started working on the thing that would become Slack and the genesis of those ideas and how it kind of coalesced and uh, all the way up into the early era of Slack. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So we left Flickr in 2009, so quite a while ago now, with the intention of making video games. 
when I say video games, lots of people think of like, you know, Call of Duty, shooting people, competitive, violent games. Very much not that. We're trying to make a web-based, massively multiplayer game around kind of exploration and community and cooperation. The fact that it's kind of hard for me to describe it, I think, is one of the challenges. The game was called Glitch, and it had hundreds of excited players, unfortunately, at a time when we needed thousands or tens of thousands for the scale of investment. And ultimately, the the game didn't work out and we wound it down. But during the four years of building the game, we were split between San Francisco, Vancouver, and New York. And we built a set of tools to be able to work together. And we built it on top of uh, IRC, Internet Relay Chat, which is kind of a multi-user chat that's been around since the 80s never very widely used and it's long long past its heyday even then in the in the mid 2000s and it was very capable but very difficult for normal humans to use it's like super nerdy doesn't have the ability to see messages when you weren't online you can't search for things there's no record of what happened in the past it's very hard to share files and so we started building all of these tools and and modifications on top of IRC to allow us to to communicate and work better. It was all things built for expediency. So, you know, the smartphone had come out semi-recently. There was no IRC client for for the iPhone at the time. We're like, okay, let's make a web page so that we can at least see the messages from the phone while we're at lunch, in case something happens while we're at lunch. And and much of the building kind of just happened like that, of functionality that we needed to operate. And by the time we shut the game down, kind of the whole business was just running on top of this system. So every bit of business process, so if an illustrator uh, design something, then they'd upload the file to pass it off to the animators, and it would go through an approval process, and then be integrated into the game asset management system. And that would all happen through this messaging platform. And the same for like, every time somebody new signed up for the game or bought something that would all flow in. And if we needed to reboot a server, that would happen out of this system too. It just became kind of the central nervous system of the company, if you like. We also realized that we really loved working this way, and we would want to continue to work this way, whatever we were doing. And so maybe the system that we built could be useful to other companies like us. And at the time, we're thinking other kind of tech-oriented small companies, maybe up to about 50 people, and this would be a good solution for them. And that's where Slack was born. Uh, That's a fascinating story. It reminds me about a, a couple of other companies that kind of started off as offshoots of something else and then took a life of their own and ended up eclipsing the company that spawned it. Yeah, exactly. And we started building Slack at the beginning of a year. And after a couple of months, we started using it ourselves internally. Like we switched over from our previous system onto this system. But then we enlisted uh, kind of our, our first set of alpha testers who were companies in San Francisco, in the Bay Area that we were friends with, basically. It's like went out to our friends and said, please use this tool for your team, which at first was a super hard proposition because for a start, you're not just asking somebody to give it a go. You're asking somebody to convince their team to give it a go because you can't use Slack by yourself. You need to use it with a team of people. And secondly, we're coming off the back of failing to make games. So we're saying, well, we just failed at what we did, but try this thing and get your whole company to use it and, you know, risk your company's productivity on this thing that we are trying to convince you is going to be successful. Um, So I think that was a kind of hard proposition, a tough sell, but we did eventually enlist some of our friendly companies to use it. And that was such an important, uh, you know, kind of part of the development of it. It went from us using it ourselves with our idiosyncratic way of working that were built up over several years to just like other normal people who who hadn't been 
you know, doing it for several years, trying to use it. And we learned so much in that period, you know, that really refined and shaped the product over the next few months as we got that feedback from our alpha testers. I think that was incredibly important. And also the way we tried to build Flickr and the way we've tried to build everything is with a lot of kind of real-time understanding it ourselves and how we use it, but also a lot of kind of real-time customer feedback, spending a huge amount of time talking talking to customers, watching customers and how they use things and understand what's, what works for them and what doesn't. And I think that that customer feedback loop is so important in, you know, kind of consumer-ish products. And I think one of the things that's really made that possible at scale in the last decade um, that I think a lot of people kind of skip over is Twitter. And the the reason for that, in the kind of pre-Twitter era, if you used some product and it was not like terrible, but annoyingly bad, there was some problem with it. It's just like, ah, this sucks. It's possible you might have told your friends or your partner about that over a drink. and, And that's as far as it would go. It's not like, you know, you had a poor experience. Normal people don't write to customer support and say, I had a poor but not terrible experience, and here's what I think. (laughs) But for whatever reason, Twitter broke down that barrier, and now if people have a slightly annoying experience, they will get on the internet and broadcast it, which on the one hand is like, well, that's a bit much. But on the other hand, it's fantastic. It is free user feedback at a level where you get user feedback, even if they're not super angry or super happy. You know, that big kind of area in the middle where people are like a bit happy or a bit annoyed, we can get thousands or tens or hundreds of thousands of bits of user feedback completely for free. And that drove a lot of our kind of early design iteration and still does today. We look at every one of those and uh, put that into the product development process. And it's it's amazing. It's, you know, it's a free, free source of constant user feedback. It's amazing. At T-Mobile for Business, unconventional thinking means we see things differently so you can focus on what matters most. Where some see another small town, we see businesses in need of connectivity. So we built the largest 5G network to cover cities, towns, and the most interstate miles in between. Where some see a caller in a queue, we see an opportunity for our experts to provide solutions without transfers. Where some see another virtual meeting, we see 5G enabling wireless, real-time translations almost anywhere you do business. Our unique approach built America's largest, fastest 5G network and also delivers exceptional customer support and 5G included in every plan. So you get it all without trade-offs. Unconventional thinking is better for business. T-Mobile for business. Fastest 5G based on average overall combined 5G speeds according to Open Signal Awards USA. 5G user experience report October 2021. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. So you're getting user feedback, you're refining the the product, you're you're learning what are the most uh, uh, common use cases, things that might not have even applied in your in your more idiosyncratic approach. At what point in the process was it clear that you had really hit on something? I think on the one hand, I could say at the point at which we we switched to our kind of open beta, we allowed anybody to sign up and start using Slack. And we kind of overnight had, I think it was something like 8,000 people sign up to try it for their company. So it's like, whoa, that's okay. We have something here. There's some buzz around it. But at the same time, that was, you know, especially compared to years later, it was a very small scale. So it's like, okay, we think there's a product here. We think this can turn into a business. But 
then over the, the kind of next few years, it was a constant, steady increment. Because it was slow and constant, there wasn't that cliff moment of like, wow, this is getting really big, or this is going to be really successful. It was just getting a bit more successful every day. And so we didn't really feel it. I think, you know, when you then go back and look at the stats at how it changed from kind of over the course of six months or over a year, it looks stark. But at the time we were in it, we were just in it and it, and it was growing around us. And I think, you know, much like the success we had with Flickr was, is very attributable to being timing it right with a lot of kind of uh, extrinsic factors that were just happening in the world. I think the same thing happened with Slack. It has been the combination of the kind of rise of consumer messaging, you know, people made the switch from, you don't email your friends anymore, you use WhatsApp or you use iMessage. And also the rise of mobile being an actually important part of people's working lives. It seems crazy, but back when we started Slack, people didn't really use phones for work very much. You know, there was like the the pre-smartphone BlackBerry crowd with their email, but that wasn't that many people. But now, you know, phone is a really essential part of your kind of work, you know, uh, software experience and the shift to the cloud, which I think is also one of those things that just feels like it's been there forever now. But the idea that, um, you know, companies you would use software hosted in the cloud is a relatively new thing, especially at the scale that it's at today. And I think all of those things came together for something like Slack to be inevitable just at the time we did it. You know, if we'd done it earlier, it would have been too early. If we'd done it later, somebody else would have done it. So I think we really lucked into the the timing, the kind of confluence of all of those factors happening around the same time. Well, uh, apart from Glitch, I'm definitely uh, sensing an ongoing theme of being at the right place at the right time for some of these. I wanted to get more insight into what Cal's job actually entails, as well as learn more about Slack's evolution over the last few years. Yeah, um, so... As a CTO, I run our engineering organization, which is, you know, a good good chunk of the company. And together with our, our chief product officer, we make up the kind of R&D side of the business. Um, and I'd say, like, the primary responsibility is Slack is a service that has to keep running 24-7, 365 days a year. It's a piece of infrastructure, and people just expect it to work. When, you know, when your company uh, organization runs on Slack... If Slack is not working, then work stops, especially in the you know last year and a half as more and more companies are fully distributed. People are working from home. It's a utility to people. So a lot of the responsibility in general at Slack is around we have to keep that working, keep that going the whole time. But then on top of that, how do we evolve that service to be able to offer it to more and more people, whether that's in kind of regulated industries with uh, special compliance requirements. You know, building software for small companies is very different from building software for large banks or for, you know, healthcare providers or things of that nature. And so it's a lot about how can we evolve the product, add new features and capabilities while still, you know, maintaining reliability, security, compliance, uh, all that kind of stuff. I think, you know, the evolution over the last couple of years, uh, you know, with the pandemic, Slack is a tool that's obviously used by a lot of companies like in the office prior to the pandemic. But I think this gave us a really unique opportunity to be able to try and convince more organizations that there are different ways to work, that, you know, you we can build a set of tools that allows you to, you know, work in a distributed manner without just duplicating how people worked when they're in the office. I think 
big trend that we saw and that we did ourselves was that at the beginning of the pandemic, we wanted to just take all of the ways in which we worked in an office and lift them up and put them on the internet. You know, and that's, um, you know, the massive success of Zoom um, has been, how can we take those meetings and just do the same meetings, but over the internet? And I think that was good because it allowed companies to continue to operate. But I think as the pandemic progressed, what we we're looking at was how can we build processes and tools and capabilities that allow people to approach work differently and make the most of being in this distributed environment. So two of the things which we launched recently, things like um, huddles in Slack, which is kind of always on voice chat to allow you to transition from kind of messaging to talking live, back to messaging, have that all be searchable in the same way. And many of our customers are finding that's a really good alternative to scheduled meetings. So we're seeing a lot of that. And then more recently, we launched a set of capabilities we call clips for being able to record video or audio messages really easily and then share those in the context of channels as well. So that, uh, you know, can replace some kinds of stands up and stand up and status meetings by having everybody record little videos or easily doing uh, kind of design presentations within your team, things like that. So I think the you know, it is still really a kind of fertile ground for what are the tools that we need right now? And what are the tools that organizations going to need over the next couple of years? Because it is we're just operating in such a different environment now. And that's going to change again as, as um, companies are able to open their offices back up. Mm. And I know that there are a lot of companies out there that have sort of, at least for the foreseeable future, planned out almost a hybrid approach to work. And to your point, I don't think any of that would have been possible maybe even as recently as five years ago without the developments we've seen in the cloud space in the fact that we're seeing uh, connectivity extend wirelessly, which enables all of the mobility. Uh, all of these pieces needed to come into place for this to be possible, or I think we would be uh, in pretty dire straits when it comes to our response to, to life during the pandemic. Yeah, I think that's absolutely true. I think it was a surprise to many organizations that it was possible for people to kind of really overnight switch to everybody being remote and business just continued. And I think that it's the technology has come a long way really recently and enabled it to be possible. And I think now people see that it's possible, see the advantages, and a huge number of people, the vast majority, really enjoy the flexibility that they've been able to have over the last year and a half. So while we will see a whole bunch of return to the office and some organizations, uh, you know, like large banks have said, everybody's going to be back in the office every day. It's going to be exactly back to how it was. I think that's going to be the, the kind of margin case because so many people have seen it's possible for them to be productive. So of course, they're going to continue to work as they will. And the office is still going to exist, but for the majority of companies, it's going to be just such a different experience. It's no longer going to be the place where most people go every day to sit at an individual desk and do individual work. It's going to be a place where you go to do collaborative work, to meet people, and that you don't go into every day. I was curious to find out what Cal thought about emerging technologies, and I was surprised to discover that this lover of speculative fiction has a pretty grounded approach toward futurism. I came across a great story about uh, some some folks who essentially hacked a system to utilize Slack as a user uh, interface or backend to some Internet of Things applications. Specifically, they had it so that they could use a command in Slack 
to uh, to turn on a light outside of a meeting room to let people know that the meeting room was in use. And as someone who podcasts, I mean, we have the same sort of kind of setup here. The thought of having that so that I don't have to get up and turn on a, a physical switch, that appeals to me. But beyond that, it just it opens up this idea of uh, of the creative and the hacker and the finding ways to utilize systems to do things that perhaps even the creators of those systems had not originally intended. Uh, do you kind of feel an affinity for that sort of hacker ethos, the idea of this is really cool what it does. Let's see what happens if we try to make it do this other thing. Absolutely. I think that's kind of a key part of what we wanted to design into Slack from the beginning, honestly, is the idea that there's more and more software tools, more and more automation that we use in our lives. You know, the kind of the average number of like bits of SaaS used by, you know, a medium-sized enterprise company is now like a couple of thousand, which is sounds crazy, but there's more and more bits of software for more and more kind of niche roles. And that's both off-the-shelf software, but also, you know, any any company at scale, what is it, Mark Andreessen said, every company is a software company at a certain scale because you have to build tools for what you're doing, um, you know, specific to, to what you're doing, specific to the challenges you have as an organization. And so I think one of the really important things is, you know, Slack is oriented around having a very open platform that anybody can build on. That is, whatever piece of software you're using, whatever you're building, you can get data into Slack and you can get data out of Slack and, you know, command things like this. Um, We've seen lots of really interesting things from our customers. We have a, a customer in Japan who um, added uh, kind of toilet door sensors to all of their bathrooms so that they could know in Slack if the bathroom was free because it was on a different floor and they didn't want to have to walk all the way down there to know if the door was locked. Um, and, you know, or, you know, we have customers who do things more related to their business out in the field, you know, so like vehicle fleet that they manage can report in through Slack and things like that. And Slack is an open platform on which people can build things which we could never have imagined. And also things which didn't exist when we built Slack, right? There's new new technologies being developed constantly. And I think that the, you know, technologies, products that are successful over the next five to 10 years are going to be ones which allow you to work with other bits of software. And so, you know, in this phase of the technology cycle, it's how can you tie more things together and how can you bring information and data into one place to help you synthesize it all? Well, and I think that philosophy also taps into something that is really important in the open source world, which is that uh, you can have the smartest people in your organization all working together to create stuff, but that collective intelligence is still a drop in the ocean when you open it up to everyone and you get all these ideas that you could not have possibly come up with with the group of people you've assembled, as well as the fact that, you know, you've enabled someone else to succeed in whatever it was they were doing. And I really like that that ethos. One of the things that's our favorite topic to talk about here on The Restless Ones is the rollout and implementation of 5G technologies. What role do you see 5G playing in the future of, of work? I think the the kind of general availability of ubiquitous connection to the internet has changed how people think about the location of where they were. One of the factors that's played into how things have gone over the last year and a half is just the ability for it to happen. The ability to, you know, use your smartphone, use your laptop from anywhere is huge and just cuts down one of those otherwise hard constraints in, on how people work. Increasing 
requirements for bandwidth and latency, you know, video and studies that show that video latency has a huge effect on kind of your interaction with coworkers, that milliseconds make a difference in being able to read people's body language, you know, nonverbal communication. And so it is kind of default assumption. It is the substrate that other things are built on um, that just needs to, to work all the time. And, you know, increasingly, the internet feels like a true utility in the sense of power or water in that just like nothing works when it's not there. The idea of having sort of a, a like a fiber level connection potentially without having to actually have the fiber, that is such a freeing experience, especially in a world where remote and mobile work, we're going to see more solutions geared toward that future hybrid workspace, I think, that are is going to be increasingly reliant upon things like like high-speed wireless connections because that's what reality is requiring. I couldn't let Cal go without asking him one more thing. What is your favorite science fiction novel? Ooh, that's a good one. Okay. I, I would say my favorite science fiction novel is not a super well-known one. Um, it's a book called The Golden Age by John C. Wright. I think it was from like 2001, something like that. And it just presents a view of the future that is really quite different to how we live now. I think a lot of my... I love science fiction. I read a huge amount of it. And I think a lot of it isn't too different to how the world is and doesn't think big enough in terms of how society, everything about how society interacts changes as technology advances. So I think it still holds up and uh, would uh, urge people to give it a read. Cal, thank you so much for joining us. I've really enjoyed this conversation. Thank you so much for having me. It's been great. It really is remarkable how technology enabled many organizations to adjust to an entirely new approach to getting work done. And as Cal pointed out, the future of work promises to include at least some of the elements we've become accustomed to during the pandemic. Knowing that there are companies that take this notion as a starting point is actually really exciting. I expect we're going to see some incredible innovation when it comes to how we work and remain productive and how we derive value and satisfaction from our work, whether we are headed into a crowded office or setting up a temporary workstation on a beach somewhere. As broadband access grows, reaching into communities and regions that previously had limited access to such things, the constraints on how we do work disappear. And this opens up new opportunities for us, creating new ways to do business, encouraging new forms of innovation. It starts to sound like one of those optimistic takes on science fiction, only it's becoming reality. And it's only possible because we have this amazing convergence of technologies like cloud computing, the Internet of Things, and wireless 5G connectivity. Make sure to come back to The Restless Ones to hear more conversations with pioneers in tech and leadership. I'm Jonathan Strickland. At T-Mobile for Business, unconventional thinking means we see things differently so you can focus on what matters most. That's why we've built America's largest, fastest 5G network while remaining a partner who delivers exceptional customer support and 5G included in every plan so you get it all. Unconventional thinking is better for business. Fastest 5G based on average overall combined 5G speeds according to Open Signal Awards USA. 5G user experience report October 2021. See 5G device coverage and access details at T-Mobile.com. 